This week on Deep Night, um, I don't know the origin. Do you have some? some no, but some we could. I mean, we it? could literally look it up right now. Oh, while I've you never keep done that. We, we do a live investigation. <laughs> I'm I'm all about it because I'm like we have. <laughs> I'll do Dale name meaning, and oh. while you're talking, we'll actually find out the root of your name. Oh, friends, hello. I'm your host, your guide, your evening companion through the hour of regrets and revelations. It's me, Dale Seaver. I ask you now to let the energies of the world coalesce in your ear holes. Take a deep breath, set your chakras to receive, and let us now enter the deep night. If you need to put on your podcast listening trousers, now is the time to do that. Because with a bang on our sacred bowls, we begin the ninth season of this program. Salutations to our returning listeners and greetings to those just joining us. Deep Night is an investigation into the creative process, wherever it may happen. We talk to fascinating artists, comedians, filmmakers, storytellers, writers, musicians, and others who dwell in the hours between night and day. I also share a great deal about myself in these audio sojourns, and my goodness, a lot has happened to me during the break between seasons, and I will reveal some of that as we go along. I want to assure you that we still come to you from the foul banks of the Gowanus Canal. The Gowanus, of course, is a polluted stretch of what used to be water in Brooklyn. It's a super fun site, well known for instant death. It's also my home. Each morning I draw strength from its toxic plumes as I walk hurriedly over the Carroll Street Bridge on my way to the R train to get to my meditation sessions at the Army Terminal. You know, the Gowanus has given me so much in the form of inspiration and probably STDs that I now feel compelled to give something back, an offering, if you will. And so I often carry a fully eaten ear of corn on the cob left over from breakfast in my yoga bag. So now as I get near those great putrid shores, I take the corn in my good arm and give it a mighty toss, and I watch as it gently arcs high above the aeration hoses, and just before it hits the surface, I watch as it dissolves and smolders in a column of green flame. Now, you may notice a more mystical side to me this season, and thank you for noticing. That's due in large part to my new love, my lotus blossom, my partner of the sex harvest, Galinda. We met on a lamb ranch in Sun Valley and instantly knew that we would be involved in a very serious tantric relationship of equals. Galinda is a gifted energy healer, and she has encouraged me to give it all up and give it a go. Well, I'm ready! I shouted naked to the heavens on our second date, slathered in neem oils and wearing a crown of thistles. Galinda has instituted some changes around here. She's insisted on a whole new wardrobe, and my, does it fit snugly and (laughs) around my middle. Oh, and she's gently pushed me to accept that my current employment was not fulfilling, so I quit. Good day, come flyer with me. I have now given myself over completely to helping manage Galinda's schedule, and she's approved of me beginning my training in the healing and mystic arts. I sleep on a bed made of crystals. And twice a week, I spend my evenings in the sacred bat position, hanging upside down from a pair of inversion boots that we've rigged up in our hallway. It really gets the blood flowing in one direction, all to the brain, which is great for accessing higher powers. I often black out from so much positive energy. 
But I am fully present for this program and for a wonderful season of guests. Now, if you are so inclined, I encourage you to pick up a couple of books as they become available. Wow, some items to read in our deep night book nook. <laughs> the first is available now. Go out and get it. It's called Witches in America by Alex Marr. It's a thorough and personal look into modern mystics in America. Then on October 11th, mark your calendars, set a tickler, you'll be able to get The Clancy's of Queens by my upcoming guest, Tara Clancy. Look for both of those to help complement your enjoyment of Deep Night. Books! Lots can be found in books, and lots can be found in audiobooks. Perhaps you'd consider signing up with our sponsor, Audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com slash Radio and sign up for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook. They've got more than 180,000 titles to choose from, including some guided meditations that you probably shouldn't listen to while driving. Audible.com, put a book in your ear, is not their official slogan, but I think it works. Now, I'm so pleased to introduce my very first guest of the new season, writer, comedian, performer, Sovereign Sire. Sovereign had a successful career in adult films for a number of years, which served as a way to support her literary ambition. She's uh, done so many things, and has ha- she has a wide array of interests, many of which she explores on her own podcast, Observations with Sovereign Sire. I encourage you to check that out, along with the blog section of her website, SovereignSire.net. Sovereign lives in Los Angeles, and when I saw that she was going to be in New York City for a week doing shows, well, I reached out and I set up an interview uh, on one of these recent Too Warm for Fall Days. We had not met before, but it was not difficult for two curious people to quickly establish a rapport and enter into a satisfying conversation about transitional moments in our lives, the experience of starting out in comedy, and the process of writing immense historical novels. She's got a regular comedy and variety show at the Steve Allen Theater in L.A. called Cobra Juice. So check that out. Now center yourselves as we go to my conversation with the singular Sovereign Sire. Sovereign Sire, welcome to Deep Night. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) It's so wonderful to have you, and welcome back to New York. Thank you. Uh, It's great you've been doing, uh, of course, you are a fellow uh, lover of comedy, a comedian. Yes. And a fellow podcaster. Yes. And a seeker of truth. I imagine. Yes. And uh, you've been doing some stand-up shows here while you're in New York. I have been. Just little bar shows. I'm in some at some clubs, you know. Those sound good. It seems like you've been going to some good places where they have the (laughs) stand-up. Yeah. The people go up, they tell jokes. Amazing. You know, I was blessed. I got to uh, 9-11. I got to go stand on stage and tell a rape joke. And I was like, what a blessing. There you go. You know, under the lights of the memorial. What, you know? This is something that uh, you could strive for. <laughs> yeah, how I was did, proud. How did it go? It actually hit very well. Yeah, and uh, I mean, typically that's not my kind of thing. But it's, it's you, you were uh, maybe using it to get at. Uh, something yeah, it else. was. It wasn't really a rape joke so much as it was a. It was a joke about the alt right and well, they how, deserve it. How horrible they are. So uh, yeah, well, that's a mess. Yes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but I gather you were kind of coming out of a slump or something. Is that? Did you feel that you were in a slump? Yeah, that happens. I mean, I don't know. For it happens that you have like one set that doesn't go the way you think it's gonna go, oh, and then yeah. you have like another one and another one, and like it only takes two or three to be like, uh, maybe I'm just not funny. Maybe it was a fluke yeah. that past the eight months before was just 
a fluke and uh <laughs> I know it. I'm shaking my head because I know it and it's not even the whole night. It could just be one joke that doesn't hit yeah. or somebody gives you kind of a weird vibe and yeah. that stays with you forever. Yeah. Or you wish you said something a little differently. Yeah. Like I just say I, I well I did uh at a birthday show. I do a monthly variety show out of LA out of the Steve Allen Theater called yes. Cobra Juice, so everyone should, you know, get in on that at trepanyhouse.org. Great organization. Uh, <laughs> nice little theater there. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so it was my birthday show and I'm friends with Mark Marin and I asked him if he would come out and do like a set for my birthday and he like it, it turned into sort of like a like a big show kind of. Yeah. And then there were cameras there and I was like, Oh, I need a tape. And whenever like all of those things align I went out and I was like, I did horrible. Well, I mean, that's how I felt. Everyone backstage right. was like, you were really funny. It was fine. But I was like, it didn't, nope. It didn't, did, didn't, didn't match where you wanted to be. No. Yeah. But uh, uh, and uh, Mark Maron's a pretty good uh, pal to have. Yeah. Nice of him to come by. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Good for you. Uh, <laughs> good. Yeah. Good for you. Uh, but also, uh, how was that experience of uh, you, uh, having him there? Did I mean, you open for him? No, he was opening for you. He, well, he was, <laughs> <laughs> I was hosting the show, so- uh, he, he went on, he did like 10, 15 minutes and then I came on, I did like six minutes and then I brought on Dave Foley from Kids in the Hall sure. awesome. to read some of my fan mail. Yeah. So we did like a dramatic reading of some of my more thirsty fan mail. <laughs> and, um, yeah. but I, I actually, I did open for Mark like a month or two ago at, at the Steve Allen theater. Uh-huh. He was doing like a, um, workshop at yeah. this new material. So he was in residence there for like two months. And so a bunch of different people were opening for him. That's right? great. You learned something from watching him. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what, what good comedy is. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Well, I also understand that you have a thing about numbers. Is that true? I don't know if it's a superstition or you're just, uh, you, you, you have a thing about uh, doing a number of shows and that I, has some kind of I, meaning for you? I don't, yeah. Like, I, I, I guess I do have, like, I guess everyone has, like, number, I feel like everyone has number things, like... Uh, maybe I'm a little know. more OCD about it than others, but I think um, definitely the first hundred shows I was very much um, like about marking that progress. Like yes. it, it's it it meant something to me. Like if, if I had done a hundred things, I could say that stand up was something that I do. And then like if I get to this amount, then that means I can say that I'm a comedian. Like I, I that whole like ten thousand hours thing. It was yes. just just like wanting to. And I guess like, there's a few other comedians that also do it. Dean Del Rey does it. And this girl, Vanessa Johnston, does it. Like, just kind of. They mark it. Yeah. Just, yeah. like, yeah. So I have a little tally at home when I walk out the door. It's also a way to make sure that it happens all the time. Because I feel like stand-up is something where you have to. If I don't do it for a couple days, like. Yeah, I you... never want to do it again. Well, it's a, it's like a, it's about being comfortable on stage, yes. and and you forget that it's like you have to do it ev- like five times a week to to maintain that level of comfort where you can actually because I write on stage, uh-huh. my my comedy I write on stage, so yeah. everything is just I don't I can't sit home and just like write little, I can make notes in a notepad, but I I'm never gonna look at it again. Yeah. it's more like I write it on stage and slowly if I if it hits, and I'll do it again. And when it hits really well, I'll just remember it. So I'm the kind of person that I can have 30 minutes just all in my head, not written down anywhere. But I know it because it works. You because know, it lives within you. Yeah, it came out organically. Yeah, you were happy to find those moments. Yes, yes, I know. I know it. I've got somewhere over those 10,000 hours by now <laughs> of just doing stuff. But uh, I once spent a summer counting steps. 
You oh, know, really? like when you start, once you get into the numbers thing, you say everybody has it. Well, sometimes you duck into it and it can be uh, a very, uh, that was a tough summer for me, <laughs> counting every single stair that you go down right. and all this, it gets a little bit kooky and you, it's like playing Tetris for many hours and then you're constantly fitting things together in your dream space, uh-huh. which is not wonderful, but uh, <laughs> uh, 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 it, it can be, and gambling for me can be like that too, because I get excited, not with the uh, cards and all, just the 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 um what do you the slot machines mm-hmm. and the pattern of it and yeah. I think well it's going to land on this eventually there's only oh I, I think three everyone wheels. definitely relates to that <laughs> which is why gambling is a problem oh it is and my my uh, new wife Galinda has put me on a strict budget so <laughs> I, she's very wealthy you good with boundaries. Uh, boundaries are for cowards. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, like, live a little bit. You know what I mean? Come on. <laughs> I'll tell you, I'm I'm somebody that, um, well, I don't know. You know, I've probably progressed since this. But a younger me, I once went to a couple's counselor. And uh, uh, my, my the person I was with at the time, uh, 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 my first wife, we, we had to do an th- exercise where you put string around where you, your, where your boundaries were, you know. And I'd put a little tight circle in the middle of the room. And this <laughs> gal took the string all the way around the outside of the, <laughs> of the A very expansive uh, person. And uh, that's uh, why it didn't work. But speaking of boundaries, is it okay to call you Sav? Yes. Okay, we're yes. there. Uh, sovereign sire, not your given name, but who cares? And uh, except that, it's very powerful to claim your own name, isn't it? It is. It is, actually. I've been sovereign for about eight years. I think so. it's wonderful, and it's something I appreciate and have learned so much from the uh, trans community and uh, people that are going through some kind of gender uh, uh, selection, uh, that they get to choose their own name. Right. It's really kind of marvelous. <laughs> except I had a friend whose daughter... Uh, well, had been born a, a boy and then transitioned. And when she uh, went to pick her new name, her mother said, no, I get to pick your name because <laughs> you're my child. And when you were a boy, I named you. And if you're now a girl, then I get to name you. And so <laughs> she's the kind that puts the boundary around the outside. Yeah, she a little intense, <laughs> yeah. you know, I yeah. was like, that's an intense person. I'm glad you are no longer married to that person. That is a very intense lady. <laughs> that's tough that, <laughs> to deal with. And of course, I've always been Dale and my father before me was Dale. And we have Dales going all the way back to the what Mayflower. Is, what, is, what is Dale? What is the origin? I, I have a thing about name origins. Oh, so what's Dale? Like, what is the... I, 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 just a solid name. We were entertainers on the Mayflower doing a little soft shoe. Of course, all the shoes were soft by then because of the rats. But it Uh, was a a lovely, a lovely lineage going back there. Um, I don't know the origin. Do you have some? No, some, but some we could. I mean, we it? could literally look it up right now. Oh, while I've you never keep done that. We would do a live investigation. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about it because I'm like, we have. <laughs> I'll do Dale name meaning, and oh. while you're talking, we'll actually find out the root of your name. Well, well, good. I'm excited to see the results. I love claiming your own name. I think it's a, a radical uh, thing. Already, already, you already, already got, got it. Got it, Boy, Dale. You've got a fast network. Yes, yeah. Dale. Yeah. Uh, is the name comes from an English surname, yeah. so you are correct, uh, which originally belonged to a person who lived near a dale or a valley. Well, 
So you're named after a geographical uh, phenomenon. Nice. What should we name him? Well, what's nearby? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good thing it wasn't a 7-Eleven I live near a Hillendale Avenue, which I oh. <laughs> very, very cute. And I live in a very sketchy area of oh. Los Angeles. It's got very cute street names like that, like... <laughs> like aspirational, yes. like there's like a Prada Street, uh, there's a Hillendale, uh-huh. <laughs> evocative of a, a, a there's a York, a nicer time perhaps, a York Boulevard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you do. You live in this great cauldron of broken dreams, Los Angeles. Yes. And uh, I've lived there for a time myself, a number of years. Um, I I was a bit there on a walkabout, kind of a discovering myself. Oh yeah. A, a and what did you about. discover about yourself? Drive. Yes. Uh, well, you know, um, a lot of things. There was a lot that happened during that time, right after uh, uh, the divorce, and kind of seeking, you know, wandering around a little bit, taking improv classes, and spending a lot of money oh, to and, learn how to yeah. say yes and. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's rough. Catering and running. But I met a lot of wonderful people. I was just back there recently, and I, I, I like it. I don't I dislike it as much as some people do. But I, 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 I like it, but I feel judged there in a different way than I do here in New York where nobody cares. That's, yeah, that's, I feel like I, when I moved here and then I moved to Los Angeles, um, I just, I was like, the girls that I was around were very lazy. And everyone's like, how did you get successful so quickly? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I lived in New York where no one gives a shit if you're pretty or if you're a, like no one cares. Right. And so after like two years of that, you learn like how, you learn how to hustle and work like no one. And then you go to L.A. and it's like it's like a knife through butter. You're just like, oh, this is easy street. <laughs> right. Like people are actually impressed by stuff like looks or whatever. Like I got it covered. It's nailed. <laughs> <laughs> That's no trouble. Yeah. It's a Yeah. And people just don't get back to you. That's the other thing that happens. Oh, yeah. It's a very L.A. thing. Like, that's mm. sort of weird. Because I think in New York, because we're all forced to be physically close to each other all day. Yeah. Um, it's, it's you can't, like, in L.A., you could spend, you, you're, you get in your car, you're in your apartment. Like, if you don't want to interact with other people, you absolutely don't have to. And you can still get everything done. You can't do that in New York. And so I think it's like that forced physical intimacy. Yes. It kind of makes you stay present. Because it's like you're just constantly interfacing with everybody, you know. Absolutely, yes. And you, it's there's a power to saying no right away and quickly. Yes, yes. <laughs> Unlike just letting it trail off and maybe something, maybe they'll get the hint. But you did live here for a number of years. Yeah, a couple of I lived years. Here. I was here. I moved here in August of 2009. And I moved back to Los Angeles in July of 2011. So you were from the L.A. area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, you were doing a number of different things while you were here? I was, I mean, I was mainly, I was a model. And then I did work as a retoucher and as a makeup artist for my boyfriend at the time, who was a photographer. Uh-huh. So he was a headshot photographer. And did I understand that there was tarot reading involved at some point? That was the first job that I ever had. Well, no, the first job I ever had was under the table. I was working as a secretary at the ballet school where I was getting classes for free. I was like, I was like office study or what, it, like work study kind of uh-huh. unofficial because I was like 12, 13, 14. But the first uh, legal job that I ever had, I was 16 and I was reading tarot cards uh, on over the phone that like a Colin, you know, <laughs> I had like legit. a binder. <laughs> <laughs> that like it was you know it was really funny because people would call me with all of their problems and I'm 
Can you imagine a 16 year old girl listening to pro- people's problems? They're like in massive debt. They're going through a divorce. They think their husband's cheating on them. And I'm 16 giving these people advice. Right. It was really funny. Like now I look back and I'm like, that's hilarious. So you're flipping through a binder full of these cards. Yeah. With like has where it has like sort of their meaning and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and but I one, I got very good at lying. I got very yeah. good at improv. Uh-huh. I got this quick and dirty uh slice into life of what it's what was had like what i could expect as an adult yes because it was very adult problems and i'm a 16 year old kid (laughs) going like well i just having to wing it you know and um so i think that in a lot of ways i'm like that was also probably my first acting class that was (laughs) i went to performing arts high school i went to um the uh, school of the arts and um was sort of like fame, but I was always a ballerina and a play and a playwriting person. Yes. I was too. I had really severe stage fright, so I could never do the acting classes because I couldn't audit. This is the kind of school that, like, when we did Peter Pan, we like put a kid out on wires to like fly over the. Sure, like it was really a it. it was a big deal. This yeah. school, um, so I always wanted to, but I was stage fright. But this job where I was like on the phone was the first time that it was it really was like an improv acting class and it was it was kind of like a trial by fire but i learned a lot from that job but now with the with the uh the cards because of course i'm interested in mystical things and healing energies thanks to my my new uh partner but uh this is um where they they were pre-written i mean uh, like not really they they would have on the back like what the cards were supposed to mean. But after a while I did memorize it and I still do have a deck of tarot cards and I will pull them out and read them for people if they, if they want me to. And why is it that the maybe upside down skeleton or something is always a good thing, but the guy in the Prince Valiant uh, haircut uh, jumping with a sword might be terrible. Um, well, upside down cards can mean the the opposite. There you go. So, (laughs) If it's like, well, the death card because they're all supposed to be metaphorical. So, That's well, here's what's funny. So they're all supposed to be metaphorical, but any of the like, sort of the trump cards that have people like a prince, a king, a queen, an emperor, empress, those are actually all supposed to represent real people. Oh, um, in our lives. Yeah, yeah. Or that are coming into our lives. Mm. Whereas the major arcana, the, those are more metaphorical cards. So I the see. death card, the the worst card to get, I think, is the tower. Because you the, don't the, have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want the tower. What does that mean? The tower Prison? is the no. The tower is like complete and utter chaos, ruin. Oh, gosh. Like what the 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 upside of the card is supposed to be. Well, you when you lose everything, then you begin again. But it means like a massive transition. So that could be a divorce, a losing your job. Yeah. It's like a Job card, like your Job in the Bible. Yeah. It's like one of those cards. And so people talk about the death card. I'm like, death just means like like transition. The tower card means like complete and utter chaos. So. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, I don't if want it that was, to flip I mean, if open. those things were true, but I mean, they're just cards and science <laughs> is the answer to everything and logic and rationality um, <laughs> as a disclaimer. <laughs> So you don't get it done yourself, or you would go and do I, it just. I mean, listen, I absolutely do not believe in any of that stuff. But I can tell you, <laughs> I can tell you, I can tell you why what my birthstone is. I can tell you when Mercury's in retrograde. <laughs> I can tell you what my horoscope is, but I, I, I believe in none of it. But I have said things like, "Well, he is a Libra. They are slippery." Slippery. <laughs> I'm a Libra. Are you? And I'm perfectly balanced. No. 
No. Mm-mm. That's what I've always clung to. No, 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 no. I like to nest. You're, you're a Libra. I don't like. I'm. I'm already out the door. <laughs> oh my! Well, I've learned something about myself today, haven't I? Slippery. And uh, some modeling, you said. Yeah. Art modeling. Uh, I mean. For, like photographic model. Photographic, yeah. not for like sketching people. No, no. Yeah, that's. Uh, I had some experience with that as a student, uh, sitting there with uh, the people, and you know some of those models you were excited to see, and some of them less so. Yeah, yeah. But then no, it no. just becomes about line and all that. This street, yeah. of course, is full of models. This floor has a modeling agency on it that we're on now in Soho, and I always have to be careful walking down the street for fear that somebody's going to steal my look, and then I'll be peering in <laughs> through the Urban Outfitters shattered oh, glass and see something that I'm. Um, where what is that about Urban Outfitters? What's the idea there when you it's all shattered? People um, ran out of things to spend their money on. So, but is is the aesthetic that they they've recently been burgled? And therefore, I'm intrigued to go inside. Have you ever seen a police barricade or something? Thought, oh, they're having a sale. Well, that's a time <laughs> to go in. Well, I mean, that's that's a time to go in, but I don't think it's a time to pay for things. <laughs> that's it's, right. More, more of a looting mentality. Yeah, but you know, <sighs> I don't know. That's a curious that's, place. You know, it's that's millennial. It's what we're about. I give it's them five just... years. I'm out of business. Um, you and I have so many things in common, Sav, uh, uh, or or not. I don't know. But I th- I'm pretty sure that we do because we have a great many interests. Yes. Don't we? And we're both creative people. Yes. Which sounds like we need a special classroom. But we're s- creatives. Yeah, I like that creatives. Creatives. Yeah, it's um, decisive. And we've had various jobs to support our passions. Yes. Uh, uh, you've been involved in uh, adult films, uh, the photographic mm-hmm. modeling. Uh, that, I guess there's some modeling that goes along with the other thing, too. I mean, they like you can call yourself like when I they call it. Sometimes they call you an adult model, like huh. you're modeling <laughs> Better or than performing. A child model. Or, yes, <laughs> yes, that that gets tricky. Well, I understand exactly what that's like because I worked at a discount frame store, yeah. so I get it. You know, yeah. and we it's, uh, it's 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 a job. It's just a job. exactly. But it's exactly what I'm talking about. And I was fortunate with that job because I had to take two buses in San Francisco. And at the transfer point, there was a place called All Star Chinese Food and Donut. And I ate there every night. Oh, my gosh. Just, How fat were you? Uh, well, I, I, I think it's it waited to all show how, up how until now. How long till you get the cancer? <laughs> I don't know, but it's fun to recall our darkest days, <laughs> isn't it? I'll tell you this. With the nude stuff, you got to be comfortable, though, don't you? You oh, be kind of comfortable in your skin. Did you always have that confidence? No, I was just, I was hungry and I wanted to get paid. <laughs> so I was like, I was that comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's a single uh, photo of me or video of me performing in five years of performing where I looked at myself and was like, wow, I look great. There was usually <laughs> like, oh my God, I can't believe any, I can't believe people keep paying for this. <laughs> like every time I'd get hired, I was like, you've seen my work, correct? Okay. Well, here's what you get. <laughs> yeah. I never had confidence, but I was more just, I wanted to get paid. So yeah. it was like the job... You know, everyone gets into, in my life at that time, it was the opportunity that was presented to me where it was like the highest, uh, what they call uh, ROI, return on investment. So I was working on a lot of writing stuff and it was minimum hours on the job, maximum pay. 
And since I was already naked on the internet, I was primarily, I was almost exclusively a girl on girl only performer. Yeah. So the stigma for that was much, it, it's not as intense. And I think I, I was more willing to be like, because I had worked in academia before, um, I was like, oh, as a girl, like every job is actually going to be degrading. So um, <laughs> that's like a myth, you know. So yeah. I, I came into adult like I I was getting a master's and I was a TA and I was like I was like on the path to to go in and be a professor. That's what I was going right. to do. So I had already had like a normal job and I hated it. So when I came into it, I was like, uh, I kind of I, I already kind of left the other option right so it wasn't so much confidence as it was just i didn't care i didn't care what people thought right uh, i don't know well there's something to that though isn't there well i guess so i just yeah i i've i've always been kind of independent in that way i've always just not really cared what other people thought yeah you well, know? that's a good th that's a good way to be yeah i mean it can get you in trouble <laughs> Sure. Well, and it's no secret to my listeners that I've performed nude in front of uh, audiences, uh, sometimes publicly, sometimes privately. Oh. And uh, it's no big deal, is what I found. It's it was really not. kind of like I found it a little bit empowering, but I'm also happy that it was in a time before cell phones and video cameras and all oh, that right? kind of thing really yeah. took off. Not so much uh, for any kind of shame or embarrassment, but because I don't like to look back at pictures of myself looking so innocent. I like looking at myself now and seeing a mature person with some <laughs> wisdom and experience, a little salt and pepper at the temples, you understand. <laughs> But uh, the goal for you, with with all the day jobs, whatever they uh, might have been, was to get back to this writing business. Yeah. Yeah. So. And now you are. Yeah, I and am. You've got a couple of novels going. Yep, I've got. I've been working on a graphic novel that's. Uh, it's about the Spanish conquest of Florida in 1565, and yes. that I just finished the first draft, and so now that's going into edits. And then there's a novel I've been working on off and on for ten years. Like, start it, stop it, start it, stop it. Something that's, like, started when I was in college. So, uh, yeah. Ten years might be a little long. But I finally sat down and have actually, like, finally figured out how to write. It was a very – it's a very ambitious novel. Uh -huh. And so it took a lot of time just trying to figure out how to execute it. Yeah. Um, and I finally did that. So now I'm like 100 pages into, and that's a traditional format. It's not a graphic novel. It's, it's a traditional literary novel. Well, talking about the graphic novel, though, uh, yeah. what drew you to do that? Were you already reading that kind of thing? Do you have some heroes in that field? Um, I, I like Alan Moore. And sure. um, I used to read he heavy metal like Illustrated Fantasy magazine, yeah. not, not the music magazine. But yes, yeah. yes. I used to love that. Um, reading those just like the, the very dark and kind of sexual and like I, I liked I liked that kind of you know I didn't like Superman or Batman I liked this the stuff <laughs> right. that was a little bit more a little alty a little darker a little more um, ri like risky bold kind of right. all those things just like everything else in my life like I've kind of gravitated towards like well what's dangerous and what's towing the line Um and I had originally conceived of these, like I said, the novel is an ambitious project. I had conceived of a seven novel series that was going to sort of follow one family over seven generations uh -huh. from the age of exploration to the age of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And um, so it would start with Columbus and it would end with the French Revolution. Like it was this idea of like get a whole, capture a paradigm shift as it's happening over 
through time. the generations. And so I'd always conceived of the first novel being a graphic novel because it was a time when people still believed in magic and people were still very superstitious. And I felt like I wanted those characters, I wanted the, the medium of the novel to reflect um, the way people interacted, believed, and engaged with the world. Mm-hmm. So I wanted it to be much more like visual and, and a graphic novel allows for you to have much more fantastic elements. So I'd always thought like, oh, the first the first generation, the first family story that I'm telling, it should be a graphic novel because it, it should, you know, so that you can make these huge kind of, you know, you, uh, you can create these landscapes and you can create these worlds in which you know, God is a real thing and angels are in the sky yes. and, and there's, there's Timoqua natives and, the, and like there's a fountain of youth and there's, you know, like you could create these kind of magnificent uh, things and, and, and it would reflect, it would reflect sort of the, the, the level of sophistication in people's thinking. Whereas the, the novel I'm working on now is like generation seven which is a French Revolution novel, which is like very gritty and there's like no magic in it. It's uh, the whole the whole thing is <laughs> yeah. very, very intense and and gritty yeah. and violent and and all these like super real. And I wanted to kind of there. I'm writing them both at the same time because they're gonna basically juxtapose each other. Yeah, well, so. that's a good way to do it. And are you uh, who's illustrating it? When you I do don't have graphic. an illustrator yet. Mm-hmm. So I, because we, ha- when I originally submitted, it's like 300 pages. So I need to get it down to like 150, uh-huh. you know, because 300 pages is a lot. It's to a big illustrate. graphic novel. Yeah, yeah. That's a very big graphic novel. <laughs> so that's to get pared down. And once, once I have a better idea of the actual scope of it, then it'll be time to sit and look at it. Il- like one of the things I had wanted to do, I had originally thought about releasing it just on my website. Mm-hmm. Um, and, putting it up as a monthly feature and having I have a lot of fans that do fan art and I was thinking of having uh different people illustrate it each month yeah as a way to like let fans kind of engage and be part of something um but then my uh the person helping me edit was read the script and he was like I think you should try to sell it to a major publisher yeah so he felt like it was he feels like He's pushing very strongly for me to try to actually just sell it. Yeah. Well, they might have, uh, 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 you know, have some more control over it, which is probably good. And then uh, two people can always make fan art that's based on that. Well, I, you know, you I mean, it's like, in, in the modern age, I think it's, it's, as an artist, you now have to ask yourself, do I want, say, the French Revolution novel? Like, I could just self publish it. Obviously, I want to go with a major publisher. Right. But, with something like a graphic novel, you ha- kind of have to ask yourself, um, do you want prestige or do you just want to get it to your fans? Like I have like 105,000 followers on Twitter. Right. I have a mailing list that's got several hundred people on it. Um, if I wanted to directly market to my fan base, like I could. could. And and yeah. I think it's like as in, in this modern time, like you're constantly asking yourself, which is, which is the better way to do it? You know what I mean? Like because – I have I have two friends that are pickup artists. And this is a perfect example. And one of them, he wrote a, a book on like pickup that he sells directly, like to yeah. his people and, and people all that. People trying stuff. to pick up other people for dates, yes. not people that yeah. do and artwork he, on like, pickup. Yeah, and he like he makes a living off of that book. 
like a, a very good living off of that <laughs> yeah. book. And then, of course, over time, he, he also teaches classes and stuff like that. And he, like right. over time, this mailing list got bigger and bigger and bigger, directly markets to, to these people. But he, like a very good living off this book. I have another friend, also a pickup artist. She wrote a book that got published through, I think it was like Harper Penguin. Like it got published like a mate, like one of the major things. Yeah. And so she has the prestige of that credit. But at the same time, like the payout is much smaller because you get like what 10 cents because there per, wasn't the buy-in the copy. from the uh, the fan base like well yeah so it's like like there's the prestige of having like published author sure. top five but the sales of the book right you know whereas this other person is completely self-published but is make has been making a living off that sales of that book for like five years or something Right. So, I mean, that to me is like like a perfect example of like as a modern creative, like the choice that you have in terms of of how you market and get your art out there. Yes. And uh, <laughs> uh, 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 I Sorry, mean, that was I, like a long diversion. No, no, no. I think it's fascinating. And, um, you know, I think uh, for the, the five listeners or so of mine, I'm eager to engage. How many with listeners <laughs> do you have? <laughs> well, let's not get into I'm superstitious about numbers. <laughs> really? Because I'm like obsessed with how many people listen to my podcast. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I like look. I, at, I go and look at the plays every day. Like, yeah. Well, yeah, I do too a little bit, but well, I'm trying to be better about it. Well, since I started doing it on my own, because I just I I lost all my subscribers because I just get a whole new RSS feed and all this oh, stuff yeah. and backlog or whatever, and so. I just put up my first like this is mine whatever interview yeah and like I've been watching like a hawk <laughs> and it's gotten like five times as many plays as any of my previous episodes so yeah. I turns out maybe I'm a little better at marketing than yeah I think you're doing okay um, well I, I I'm I'm uh, hesitating only because I want to know with the seven that's such an ambitious thing the seven novels I don't think I'll do seven no. okay I think it's just gonna be the Okay, but there's the, a big. It's a big project. Yes, and my uh, leaves of grass for sure. And I think there is some great wisdom to doing some, and then working back to know how that uh, narrative carries throughout history, but throughout all these different stories. So it might be a little ways off before it all comes. Yeah. Together. And uh, you're writing at home? Do you go to the cafe? Where do you, how do you write? Um, I used to, the first, the graphic novel was my first time finishing a prod, like uh, something of that scope. Yeah. Like, it was, it's so like it's epic in scale. Um, and for that, I used to like go to cafes and all these things. It was like two hours a day. And it was, it was really hard for me to like harness that energy with this novel that I've been writing, I I sit at home and write for six to eight hours a day. Just it's because, like I said, I spent ten years thinking about how to execute this narrative that I wanted to do because right. I knew it was going to be multi layered. I, I had an idea of what I like as an exercise what I wanted to do to have four or five characters in a state of play and no one has the same information and everyone's kind of. Because I want it to reflect real life. and right. But I also knew that I was very ambitious. And it, it means a lot of like charts almost of this is what so-and-so knows. This is what so... like And to constantly keep that straight it's like in your like head. Game and, of Thrones almost. Yeah, and, to, and yeah. to overlap it in that way where it's like you have all of these characters totally at cross purposes. Um, that, you know... So now once I figured out how to do it, now it's like birthing something that's been gestating for that long. So it's like 
you know, when a woman goes into labor and they, like my mom has a story when she went into labor with me, they kept, um, they were trying to induce labor. So they hooked her up to uh, like a drip where they were like giving her like all these drugs that were supposed to make her go into labor. Yep. And it wasn't working. So they they were adding more and more and more. And then someone figured out that the pump wasn't working and like they fixed it. And then it was like (laughs) all the drugs hit her. And I just, she's like, you flew out. She's like, it was, it was so fast. I actually almost didn't feel it. It was that fast. It was so whatever. And like, that's how this novel, like this one feels. It's, it's like, it's just coming out so quickly. I'm just like, I just got to get it done. Like, yeah. It's It's wonderful to enter the world with that much momentum. Yes. uh, (laughs) Like nothing changed. Like it's been that way my whole life. That's amazing. Um, And uh, uh, one of the, uh, reasons I was interested to talk to you is because, uh, you know, a lot of times we have these uh, transitional moments. It sounds like this has always been happening and it's kind of, as you're saying, kind of coming out quickly now. But uh, you you had a moment where uh, things changed. There was a kind of health issue. And mm-hmm. and then you, you, you decided to, what, to fully commit to the podcasting, which I've often said is the entertainment of last resort. A lot of people find themselves <laughs> against the wall and say, well, I'm going to podcast my way out of this. But uh, <laughs> but th- that that happened. There was a, a moment for you that was very uh, Yeah. Um, I got told that I had hepatitis C. And, and that's a liver deal. Yeah, that's a yeah. liver deal. And at the time I was working an adult and I didn't know if like I that was I could still work yeah. and have that. So it was also the threat of suddenly having no income right and no means to get income um so there was like that very practical uh thing and then there was of course health insurance and get like the testing and and the medication was like eighty thousand dollars um and even if you pay your copay that was still eight thousand dollars which is where am i gonna get eight thousand dollars so there And it was like a thunderclap kind of moment because I was like, okay, so I've been doing this job because I'm going to write and all this stuff and I haven't written anything. I've just been sort of in Lotus land kind of having fun and making money and, you know, sitting around watching TV. Like I saved my money. I was good with my money. Like I I own my dad's house and I have a savings account. Mm -hmm. So I was I was smart with my money. But so it wasn't like I was like spending money like willy nilly, but I definitely was squandering my time. You know, I was going out to the bar and drinking or, you know, a lot of times just sitting around like watching TV or like just not being productive. And a lot of that was fear of failure, fear fear of starting something because that meant I would have to finish it. Right. It's a little like sort of deep psychological issues. It's like we're going to it's a little serious. Yeah. Um, So how do you break through that then? Um, so I got that diagnosis and I realized, you know, um, that if I, I needed to, I hadn't done the things that I wanted to do and that I needed to change my life. And, um, eventually I cleared it like, uh, 20% of people clear it on their own. After six months, I cleared it. Congratulations. Um, thank you. So, but in the meantime, like that happened, I just realized like I had to get things going. So I had a website, but then it was like, I wanted to do the podcast. Yeah. I, I wanted to start doing, doing the writing and the stand up. And the thing is like changing your life is it's incremental. It took me two years to get to the point where I was doing stand up. The novels are like, it was a, it was a process to get there. Sure. Cause yeah. it's like you stop and I'm like, okay, well what do I really want to do with my life? 
And how am I going to do that? How am I going to make a living while I'm writing a novel? Like that's a huge undertaking. It'll probably be five years before both of these things are actually done and on a bookshelf. Yeah. That, and that's just, that's for, that's standard for a novel. Like most novels from the time you start writing it to the time that it's actually on a bookshelf and people can buy it is about five years. Yeah. Um, memoir may be a little faster, but so there was this other thing of like, what are, what else, what are you going to do to, to make a living while that's going on? And, and so there's like a lot of false starts and, and things like that. I'm going to do a web series. It, you're kind of throwing everything at the wall to see what'll stick. Yes. Um, and you know, I eventually I got a writing coach cause I, I was it's, after a year I was like, I still can't seem to sit down and finish this thing. So I went and got a writing coach, which I went to school for writing. So I was kind of like, looking down on that but I got a writing coach and I learned how to prioritize things how to finish things like I had someone that would just sit there and literally watch me work and make me keep working and every time I wanted to quit like I think this novel's stupid I'm just gonna stop nope like so (laughs) like I mean it I when you're faced with your own health and things like that you know it's 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 Honestly, it was like the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it made me stop and go like, you know, what are you doing with your life? Right. Those are powerful moments to have. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that you cleared it and all that. And I'm yeah. glad that you're on this uh, Thank uh, you. creative path yeah. right at the moment. And you, you mentioned memoir. You said that uh, I think I heard you say in an interview that you're not interested in memoir and writing that way. However, you are a very open person. Yeah. You talk freely on podcasts, on interviews, everywhere yeah. I see you. Uh, your blog has a number of things that are very personal and yeah. memoir, comedy. Yeah. Uh, it comes from a real Very place. personal place, yeah. So you just feel like you have it covered, and <laughs> I just, <laughs> so you, you know, want to do the other I, thing. I think that memoir, they, I think, one, it can become a form of trauma porn, uh. which it was sort of people focusing on kind of, you know, it's a it's a trend in memoir. It's like, because you've got to have, like, the story you tell. And, and I don't, one, because of the industry I come out of, there's so much stigmatization already about the, these people like anyone that's in adult is broken or you know like there's already this narrative there yeah that would kind of like hijack you know i have a friend that's that is tyler knight that is doing a memoir and it's i i got the um the advanced readers copy and it is an incredible work of literary genius it's it's amazing and he had so much trouble publishing it like um had because pe- there's some uh, stigma? No, well, because the publishers wanted it to be dumbed down oh. and they wanted it to be more salacious. And he's a writer. He was not interested in that. And it became a huge struggle. Yeah. And uh, that's the problem is like coming out of a, an industry like mine, like people are like, are you going to publish the novels under your stage name or your real name? And I'm like, I'm going to try to do it under my real name first because mm. the minute that my stage name is on it, they're going to want to market it in a very specific way, and they're yeah. probably going to want it to be dumb. You know, it's, like, it, there's a lot of these weird things that you now have to deal with. Be- and so my the thing about adult is it's like you can't unfire a gun, but that is with me forever. And it's like it doesn't – I could be Hemingway, and I'm still going to face static when I go to publish something because of this stigmatization that people that do this job cannot – do anything else so it it sucks like (laughs) 
But so that's like for me, the other yeah. reason it's like memoir is kind of off the table because I don't want to write that book, you know, but that's going to be the only one people are interested in reading. Yeah. Or publishing anyway. Well, I mean, hopefully that change. I mean, at like I doing like comedy, doing comedy has been people have been no one talks about it. Yeah. Whenever I go, no one talks about what I what I do or what I did. No one. Well, it's just a job. It's part of your experience. Yeah. And I, people have been very, you know, like like Mark Maron was someone that was like, you should absolutely talk about it and yeah. you should, you know, make people uncomfortable. But so like if anything, that's been sort of people have been encouraging yeah. of it because they're interested in hearing about this world. So in that way, it's it's been surprisingly awesome. But I'm still just kind of waiting for you know, yeah. like like I said, my friend's experience in writing memoir, like it was it was chilling for me mm-hmm. as a fellow writer. Because I'm like, OK, well, all right. That's what I've I've got to be prepared for. Yeah. Is that I could write a... something amazing and I got to be prepared for, yes. you know, that I might not get it published because. Right. People can't get over my other job. But by by kind of uh, just claiming it and uh, embracing it and kind of. Just making it uh, normal. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, well, a, like given sort of given like Tinder and Snapchat and everything. I mean, I feel you know, like my generation and the one that's that's coming behind me is the the attitudes are much. The only people I ever really get static for that are treat me a certain way are like male comics that are maybe a little older, yeah. and so they just come from a different. You know, they're the, like they're the, the ones that are more like you'd be like, oh, so you no. did, uh, you know, and I have to be like, uh, excuse me. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I've had it happen before. It was like it was on Twitter and I was like, comedians like, oh, like I'm being followed by a hot porn star. And Brian Koppelman is someone that follows me and follows this other. And he he was like, uh, she's also really funny and a really great writer. And, and it, it was kind of adorable. Like yeah. I was being defended. But like that happens sometimes where it's like so, like some just bumbling idiot will kind of like roll in and be like, oh, and I've yeah. been lucky that I've had actually like really cool people go in uh, and defend me yeah. and go like, don't don't do that. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think you put enough out there uh, with the writing and the comedy that people can support you and and say, well, you know, the work is here. Yeah. And, and nobody cares what I did before that. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of been. The saving grace was one of the things that made me... I mean, I was successful in adult. I had a five-year career, which is a really long time in porn. That is a very... Yeah. And, and almost exclusively girl-girl, which is even more crazy that I was able to have a career that long only doing girl-girl, which is, you know, a subgenre. It's not... It's a niche. Um, but one of the things was I would have directors tell me, can you just be more of a dumb whore on Twitter? Like jokingly though like, can you just like come on yeah it's a little cerebral it's like you need to like be appealing can you just retweet some pictures of you with the dick in your mouth can you just do that and i was like no like i like i don't want to do yeah i don't want to retweet stills and i don't want to act like i'm dumb like i just couldn't i can't do it no and so l- luckily the five years that i've been on twitter the six or maybe i think it's like seven years now I was always this person, whether I was doing adult or modeling or whatever, I was always this kind of cerebral person. And I was like writing stuff like the blogs and all, all of those things. I was, that was consistent. And so even though it kept me from maybe having huge broad appeal as a porn performer, moving forward, that fan base has been very 
they've come right with me over to this other stuff and are interested in what I do now. And they'll come out to the stand-up shows and they're super respectful. And so in that way, like I've cultivated a group of followers that are, you know, in it for the long haul. Yeah. It sounds like you have your eyes always on the, the longer game anyway, yeah. which is probably a good thing yeah. to do. Now, uh, I know we're almost uh, getting to the to the end here, but uh, one of the things that I think um, speaks to that, too, uh, is the integrity that you put into the writing and it, even throughout the blog and all that. And something uh, uh, struck me. And if it's too personal, that's you can tell me, but I have a feeling it's going to be okay. But you wrote about uh, your father, maybe your adoptive father. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you, he was kind of walking you around the property uh, as he was, uh, I don't know, was giving you his final wishes of what he wants to have happen with that. Yeah. And uh, it's, it, that's a heavy moment to mm-hmm. experience with a person. And uh, it's something I'm also going through that in a sense as, as our parents get older and creak yeah. into uh, old age. Uh, my father's very uh, uh, interested in making lists of all the things that are in the house. And <laughs> he doesn't uh, use the computer. I mean, we let, yeah. him, we let him, but he doesn't know how right, to really yeah, do yeah. it um, or care to know it. Do a great many things, but the computer seems to be something he's not into. So it's all these handwritten, you know, ruled paper. Yeah. With the, this is this was purchased in 1980 something or 70 from this place for this amount of money, and right. you put a check if you want it. And uh, I only bring it up to say I, I had a real moment of connection with you uh, around that and around yeah. uh, uh, taking care of our our parents and kind of preparing for that. Which it's intense because I'm adopt. I, he is my adoptive father. So he's, he's significantly older. So it's kind of like, it's been, it's been an intense, especially because he was a very physical person. Yeah. This is someone that like had like a six pack until like, I don't know, like he was 70, you know, like <laughs> Pretty good. that kind of dude. Yeah. Um, and so my whole memory, my whole life was with my dad was like this like shirtless guy, like running down a soccer field, you know, and and picking me up and carrying me and running with me and coaching me. And, and it was it's been intense to see like the other day it was like he has a belly now. That's weird. He walks slow, like to watch that process and be like this person used to represent like absolute strength and safety. Right. And that's gone now. It's very intense. It's a lot to go through. Yeah. And uh, it's another, it'll be another transitional moment. Um, uh, I, I kind of thought, you know, I lost my mother at a, at a young-ish age, 20 yeah. or so. And so I kind of felt I was inoculated against it. But now that I'm getting closer, well, I don't know, it could be a number of years. Right. But still, it's, it's, it's always a reality. But, <laughs> yeah. but now that we're talking through it, uh, it's still, it's bringing up a lot of tough stuff. But at the end, we'll still be left with comedy, yeah. and we'll be left with our memories, which gets me to history. And you've already talked about this, uh, the novel, and you're interested in history, or your interest in history, and your uh, uh, deep affinity for the themes that run through uh, our common lives yeah. and how we're impacted by that. So, I the, my last question is because I saw that you recently went to the Lost Colony. Yes, and oh that's my off gosh. of North Carolina. <laughs> is that yes. where it is? Uh, Roanoke. Off of Ro- the Roanoke Colony, is that what it was? Roanoke or? Island. Roanoke yeah. Island. And these were colonists that then nobody knows what happened to them. Yeah. It's the enduring mystery. Did you figure it out while you were down there? Um, I have idea. There's actually, like, there's extensive, like, 
that was one of the things I wrote in. I wanted to have Virginia Dare be a character, like a super side character, yeah. like a throwaway kind of reference. Um, she was one of the main people. Well, she was. She was supposedly the first. She's the first child, English child born, because the first uh, white child born in America actually was born in Saint Augustine in 1565. Uh-huh. Um, but he like so this whole thing and but in in Florida, but so the whole thing about the first, the first English child, yes, in, in uh, was born in Roanoke. And then disappeared, like the, when the colonists disappeared. So there was always this enduring thing that Virginia, her name was Virginia Dare. There's sort of this enduring mystery that perhaps she survived. And I'm going to get the dates wrong because I, I do. That's what I do. But I believe it was in like 1604. She would have been in her 20s. There was um, there was a certain belief that the, the colonists went and stayed with one tribe of Indians and then another tribe of Indians, Native Americans, um, I for, I'm going to forget the names, but yeah. uh, we're fighting with each other and that um, some of the white colonists were taken by those natives and then sold into slavery to other natives. But there was a report in 1604 of there was a Indian chief and he had a copper mine and he had slaves that were working the copper mine mm-hmm. and like two or three of them were white and one of them was a girl in her 20s. And so and it was believed that this wasn't reported back to the main colonies because there was no way to help them. Uh-huh. And so that like there, there, and there are little things like that, that they might've been absorbed in what would now be the Tuscarora. Um, so, you know, there's all kinds of ideas about whatever. And, and I, you know, you have to imagine though, that, that the Vikings got here, that was all kinds of like, see, like travel. I, the chances are that people have been populating the Americas for a very long time, but just in these little isolated pockets that then disappear. Right. But I'm sure before, I mean, like what surprised me when I was doing research for the novel, the graphic novel is the number. There are so many stories of Spaniards that would get shipwrecked and like wash up in Florida, live there for like five, 10, 15 years with natives, then encounter Spanish people again, go back home. And like life just continued. (laughs) Like, it, like it was actually fairly common. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't, you know, I, it, it's it that was that was what really surprised me was that narrative. Like, people are robust. Yeah. H- human beings <laughs> are in like they are robust creatures. That was like the main thing I learned from all of my historical research is is people people can survive and adapt to just about anything. Yeah. You know. Uh, yes. And I think we've proven that. <laughs> I think you would do pretty well in one of those colony situations. I think I would. Yeah, I would have elected you leader. <laughs> I think you'd do just fine. Uh, this has been so great having you, you on. Thank you. Thank you for um, having me on. You have a brand new website that's up? I do. I used to have ilovesob.com, but I'm not part of Julie Land anymore. So I now have a site, uh, sovereignsire.net. So redirect which, your browsers. Yes. Update which your is links. Totally safe for work. And <laughs> except for the fan art page. Some of my fans like to draw me with my tits out. What are you but they're do? really Me good too. drawings, so I know that's what I do with you my know, fans. Like I just, so you might see some <laughs> illustrated tits, but they're not real, so it's art. 
heaven so. forbid. <laughs> <laughs> and you head back to L.A. soon? I do. I'm heading back on Sunday morning, okay. and then that night I'm performing at the Comedy Store. So Okay. Well, this might come up after that, but you have regular gigs at the, at the Steve Allen Theater? I do. I have a monthly show, the Cobra Juice Variety Show at the Steve Allen Theater. If you go to trepanyhouse.org, they will always have the show listed and so this month it's september 24th and then the next one is october 21st um yeah good well people check it out uh it's a delight thank you very much continued success and everything good luck with all the writing and comedy and whatever else comes along thanks for being here thank you Well, I enjoyed that immensely, folks. Sovereign's the real deal. And that book, those books, certainly something to look forward to. Who knew that a whole season of American Horror Story? Do you watch that program? It's going to deal with the lost Roanoke colony that we spoke of. Folks, my fingers are always on someone's pulse. Now, Sav is one of these people who manages to operate with complete candor and savvy about the world. She marries confidence with the willingness to make herself vulnerable. She's a keen observer of human nature. Sav is one of the denizens of the deep. Night. And <laughs> now so are you. Thank you for listening. we got some more great episodes on the way. Tune in. Though this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Till next time. Deep Night is written and performed by James Bewley with production assistance from Harvest Works in New York City. Music throughout each episode is provided by the amazing talents on the artistic roster of Howler Hills Farm in the great state of Ohio. Deep Night theme by Zach Gabbard, season 9 podcast icon and logo designed by Samantha Mash. Download episodes directly through daleradio.com or subscribe and review the show on iTunes. Also available on Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Follow Dale on Twitter at Dale Radio or Instagram at Dale Seaver for behind-the-scenes peeks into the production of the show and the life of Dale Seaver. Thank you to all the subscribers and supporters of this program, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>